Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1, as we continue during the summer weeks working through select psalms. This morning, perhaps where we should have begun with Psalm 1, the entrance to the Psalter. I'll read the entirety of the psalm, verses 1 through 6. Let us attend to the reading of God's holy word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty God, when the world spins crazy, spins wild and out of control, spins toward rage and hate and violence, spins beyond our wisdom and nearly beyond our faith, when the world spins to chaos as it does now among us, We are glad for sobering roots to provide ballast in the storm. So we thank you for our footage in communities of faith, for many fathers and mothers who have believed and trusted as firm witnesses to us for their many stories of wonder, awe, and healing. And when we meet you hiddenly, we find the spin not so unnerving, because from you the world again has a chance for life and sense and wholeness. Help us to watch and wait and listen, for you are the truth that contains all our spin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The past two years, our family has planted a garden, or at least had a garden. We've had fierce, mild success. It's been quite an adventure in horticulture, an adventure in bugs as well as deer, Uh, Now, I don't have a a green thumb, but we have eaten a few huge celebrity tomatoes and fried some squash. We've made some caprese salads with cherry tomatoes and fresh basil all from our garden. This year, we had some delightful jalapenos and currently have a runt of watermelon. This year has also been an adventure in watering. Apparently, gardens need water. Plants need water. And this is how this altar begins. Or rather, this is the metaphor that serves as the entry point to the Psalms. And I think you can make the case that it is the controlling metaphor of the entire Psalter. It's the hermeneutical key, the worldview, the lens for understanding the rest of the Psalter. It is this horticultural metaphor. Now, this operates on a number of levels. Uh, One rabbit trail we won't go down, but it's worth noting that the man who is righteous is Planted, the actual word is transplanted, which has all sorts of overtones and implications for the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, as well as adoption, both physical and spiritual, and grafting in Paul and Romans 9 through 11 and all that, but for another day. I want to focus on the metaphor of the blessed man being a tree. In order to do this, in order to understand the significance of this, we have to realize that trees are not just trees. 
Trees have a rich, complex overlay of historical and cosmic symbolism. Uh, Scripture begins with trees in a garden, and Scripture ends with a tree, the tree of life. And just this past Christmas, we spent some time looking at the theological significance of trees. I don't want to repeat that here. More culturally, more contextually, and even historically, perhaps one of the more more ignored facets of tree symbolism that is quite pertinent for us in Psalm 1 is that trees were closely associated with kings, with kingship, and with victory. Near eastern despots from Egypt to Mesopotamia, these kings, these warriors, these conquerors, they were known for two things. Skill on the battlefield and their excellent horticultural skill. They were geniuses primarily in their ability to transplant and tend gardens and trees. Asher Nasir Paul II called his work his Garden of Happiness. It was located in the new capital city and consisted of over 40 varieties of trees. Tiglath-Pileser was another king who took great amount of pride in his internationally renowned green thumb. These Middle Eastern kings would plant orchards in their lands, and these orchards would be filled with trees from other territories that they conquered. The more variation of tree, the more transplanted trees, the more powerful the kingdom or empire. Assyrian kings boasted that the plants of their royal orchards thrived better under their green thumb than in their natural habitats. Horticulture was also the forte of the pharaohs in Egypt. Ramses III repeatedly makes mention of the great groves and arbors and the palaces of trees. The chapels or the temples would be surrounded with sacred groves. The kings would literally transplant forests and then tend these temple orchards. These were victory gardens. Trees were essentially trophies, symbolizing power and skill, victory and conquest. And this makes it not that surprising when we read in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Trees represent, they carry significance beyond firewood or paper. They represent the immaterial, or rather, they are material embodiments of the immaterial. Trees are mythical, symbolic by nature and use. In Mesopotamian lore, trees are more than simply trees. From the Middle Bronze to the Iron Age, the tree was venerated as an image of fertility, of life. The goddess Asherah, known also as Lion Lady in West Semitic epigraphy, was worshipped as the goddess of the earth, of plant life, of sexuality, of fertility and prosperity. Trees carried symbolic weight in most societies and cultures throughout the world. Now, by cultivating the image of the tree, the poet in Psalm 1 grants the righteous a few things, while implicitly perhaps recognizing that a a tree is a living thing that can die, be ruined, that could be cut down, that can be ripped up, sure, maybe implicit. But as a transplanted tree, the emphasis for the poet is on growth. There is necessary, required, expected movement of this living tree. There is expected growth. But it's movement in two directions. 
The tree is expected to be, is supposed to be productive, meaning that the way of the tree is supposed to be upward and outward, reaching towards the heavens, towards God. Athanasius, the great 4th century father of the church, said, God became man so that man might become as God. But for a tree to grow up, for a tree to bear fruit, first, its roots must descend, must press downwards. And in the psalm, the tree is planted by streams of water. The lower the roots push, the higher and the stronger the tree. But this this concept of streams, of waters, is also pregnant with meaning. And the meaning is is actually so multifaceted, it's almost to the point of contradiction. Because water, well, water is an agent of death and life. One of the reasons why it's used for baptism. Waters can be used to represent death, and waters can be used to represent life. Chaos and peace. Destruction and fertility. Water functions on two levels. A little bit of water is a drink. A lot is a flood. Water is both life and death, and it can be both simultaneously. The flood is a good example of this, as is the Red Sea. Life for some, death for others. Water in scripture and in other religions, mythologies, it is symbolic. Water is symbolic of the chaos, the abyss, the underworld. We even read, in the beginning the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And this this tree being planted by streams of water, the roots must be in contact with earth and water, with tomb and death, with decay and destruction. Or said differently, the thing that sustains you is also the thing that could kill you. There is a symbolic sense, a space embodied by the psalm, plants the tree by waters. The idea being you have to be planted by or in touch with your own death. You have to be close to the abyss, close to the chaos. You have to feed off of or grow off of your own death. And this is the way there is growth This is the only way there is growth. Roots must grow deep before the tree can bear fruit. A tree must go to the underworld before there is life. You see this in a great many stories. Great literature always contains some type of underworld chaos abyss experience. The Odyssey, the transformative experience when Odysseus goes into Hades or the underworld. The Hobbit with Bilbo. He has to, well, first he has to become a thief, and then he, so meaning that he has to get in touch with his own abyss, his own chaos, before then he goes into the actual lair of the dragon and comes back to the Shire, transformed, renewed, a new hobbit. An interesting riff on this is Narnia, because for C.S. Lewis, Narnia seems to be that place of transformation. That's a whole other ballgame. But we see this, we see this in our own lives. You take on successive challenges. And you become more developed, more mature, stronger, sturdier. 
Let's say you, you learn to deal with different kinds of people. You're in a situation where you have to deal with a lot of different kinds of people. Or you take on the challenge of getting a degree in a particular field of study or learning a musical instrument or a foreign language. You do something that perhaps you're afraid of doing, but you do something that you could fail at. You enter into a space of unknown, of darkness, of chaos. And when you do something that you're afraid of doing or that you could fail at, and you continue to push through, you become someone else. To grow up, you have to go down. You have to struggle and wrestle and fail. You go towards something dark and scary and dangerous, something unknown and chaotic, just like a tree. You become more than who you are by taking on successive challenges. And for some of you, this, is, this has happened, and for some of you, it will happen. But you go through a trial, or you go through a horrible experience, or a difficult experience, and you actually emerge on the other side. You, you end up out of it, and you return to some type of stability. And you might be able to reflect on what you just went through, and you think, oh my goodness, wasn't that something? But as you continue to live, you realize that you are put together better now than you were. You have more courage, more stability. You handled something you didn't know you could, and in that you gained strength. Now, of course, just because there is a challenge doesn't mean you'll come out of it better. It is possible, and people do just get taken out at the knees by life. But it's not unexpected. It's not an unexpected occurrence to experience a severe trial and come out of it better. To grow strength by engaging, by fighting the monster. Now, this is actually the criteria for two major genres of literature, comedy and tragedy. And comedy, when we're talking about literature, is not ha-ha comedy. Comedy technically means that you take a trip to hell, but you come back out. In tragedy, it's just hell all the way down, the whole time. Now, both are possible. Of course, we're hoping for the comedy. But that's, that's the hero's journey. But it's not just a preparedness for the chaos or the abyss or the bottom to fall out. It's actually necessary to walk into the chaos, to walk into the abyss, to be planted by these rivers of water, to get into, in touch with it in a sense, to grow roots deep down into it. Oh, this, is, this is the story of Beowulf. I just reread that story this summer, and what stood out to me is that Beowulf comes to defeat Grendel because he heard that there was a monster, and he came to defeat it, and that's it. No hidden motive of revenge, no type of personal thing. There's a monster, so therefore he's going to deal with it. Why? Because that's what heroes do. And then, oh, there's another monster. We didn't know about Grendel's mother. And Beowulf's response, well, I guess that means I have another fight ahead of me. Now, a more popular version that perhaps you've seen is in the, the Marvel Universe. There are bad guys and there are monsters, and so the Avengers go and fight. Why? Because that's what you do when there are monsters. Uh, specifically, I think uh, Thor Ragnarok is a, an interesting example of this, because what happens in that movie is that when Thor goes to voluntarily fight Helena, the goddess of death... That is when his engagement with death is how he gets this newfound power and control of lightning. And, as most mythologies do, it's not coincidence that the thing he kills his enemies with 
is inside of him. It's what he's made of. The idea is that you grow, that you get stronger and become something more or become something different when you struggle and when you wrestle and encounter chaos or monsters. Now, this really shouldn't be that surprising. What do you do when you lift weights? Well, you break yourself down, you struggle and fight with the weights, and in the process, you build new muscles, at least in theory, right? The more you break yourself down, the more that you struggle, the stronger and the bigger you get. But interestingly, it's more profound than even that. If you, if you go somewhere you haven't been, if you take on successive challenges, you put yourself in a new situation where all you have is darkness, it's chaos, it's the struggle of the unknown, you go deep into the watery chaos, as I mentioned, either with foreign language or martial arts or musical instrument or something, your DNA, your, your brain codes for new proteins and actually creates new structures. So biologically, things are unlocked in you. Your genetic structure unlocks and you have genetic biological potential inside that doesn't manifest itself until you demand that it does by entering into new spheres. You can literally unlock, literally unlock, biologically unlock parts of you and bring them, bring things into existence that weren't yet in existence. When you enter into unknown darkness, you literally turn into something else. You can become more than you are. And you know this at another level as well. What are children? Well, children are constantly exposed to the abyss. They're at the edge of everything they don't know, which is everything. And they have to learn skills. And, and we watch as little infants become, literally become, something, even someone else, through their engagement with the unknown, the chaos, the monsters of their life. And they gain mastery, they gain skill, and they become something different. By entering, by being planted, by encountering the abyss, the chaos, the waters, the darkness. Some of you may have heard of the Axis Mundi or the, the World Tree. Uh, the Scandinavian World Tree carries significant and quite fascinating meaning. Uh, this, this Scandinavian World Tree reaches from the very top, symbolized, the very top of everything, of the heavens, to the very bottom of everything. The idea being that this tree connects the lowest with the highest. Now, this tree in imagery is at the bottom, surrounded by snakes that are always eating, trying to eat the bottom of the tree. And at the same time, the snakes are gnawing at the roots. The tree is planted by, immersed in water. Again, encountering the dragon or the flood or both, as in Jonah's case, the snakes, the chaos, that is where renewal, restoration, new life takes place. To grow up, you have to go down. Just like a tree. You have to struggle and wrestle. You go towards something dark and scary and dangerous. There's an interesting take on this in a novel by Eugene Vodolodskin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, entitled Laris. It's a story about a man growing up in 15th century Russia. Actually, the story begins with him as a boy. Uh, he's an orphan brought up by his grandfather, trained in traditional healing methods by his grandfather. He forms a relationship with a woman who dies in childbirth, as does his child. 
Well, the man is consumed by guilt and terror and self-reproach. And he has to come to terms with his own powerlessness, his own ignorance. An ignorance that is responsible for the death of two people. The book then is a journey and it's a story of, of reinvention, or you could say it's a story about growing roots. Arsini decides, that's the young man's name, he decides that the rest of his life has to be a life that best represents in the world the person he has loved and lost. He has to live a life on behalf of Justina and his child. And he begins the process of reinventing himself to give space, to give room to those lost people. But as the story goes, this reinvention is not towards more security or becoming more interesting or more powerful or more sexy. Rather, this reinvention requires loss. It requires that he open himself up for an other, for others. It requires that he abandon notions of respectability and success to make room for others. And he becomes a holy fool. He takes on an outrageous life, unconventional, primarily because it's selfless. In one scene on these journeys, he arrives at a neighboring city where there are already two holy fools. And one of them says this, Be her and be yourself simultaneously. Be outrageous. Being pious is easy and pleasant. Go ahead and make yourself hated. Don't let the people of this town sleep. They are lazy and uncurious. Amen. In other words, he encourages Arsini not only to take on himself the unfinished life of his child and wife, but also to discover himself in giving room for others. Knowing that many will think him ridiculous and he will be offensive to many. The other holy fool says, disown your identity. Disown yourself completely. It's quite a frightening command. But as the novel unfolds, this giving space or reinventing of a self that isn't defensive, aggressive, or anxious, you begin to actually see a flowering, a maturing growth in Arsini. We have some descriptions of him as a healer. Sometimes his methods don't work. Sometimes they do. But Arsini always listens to the patient. And at times he'll press his forehead against the patient and weep. He shares the pain and even in some measure the death of his patients because he knows that life does not remain the same after someone has died. Even in the patients that Arsini cannot cure, they say that they feel better for having interacted with him. They think that their pain reduces after meeting with him and their fear lessens along with it. And the further Arsini goes down into the abyss of others, the further he goes into the depths of woe and of suffering, struggling in the abyss, the chaos of other people's lives, the more room he creates for other people, and equally, the stronger he becomes himself, the more growth and flourishing, the more flowering of himself. It's how, it's how he's reborn. 
And isn't this what we literally see embodied in Christ? A willingness to go down and not just to earth, to take on the chaos, suffering. I think this is the idea behind the phrase in the creed, descended into hell. He went to the lowest parts, took on the chaos, walked into the abyss. Christ has roots all the way down in hell. And that is what allows him to sit on heaven's throne. I would argue that I don't think we pay enough attention, or rather, I don't think we pursue the abyss like we should. I think if we did, if we opened ourselves up to things not going well, if we opened ourselves up to things not going well in other people, if we took on floods and chaos, if we entered into brokenness, into isolation, the fractured, the damaged, the deformed, and the tormented. I think we would find God more often than not. Because our God was broken. God became fractured. God is the deformed. He willingly entered that space. He makes his dwelling place with the poor, the needy, the outcast, the leper, the Gentile, the sinner, As one author said, modern people don't see God because they don't look low enough. When you are struggling to locate God, look lower. And when you can't find him, dig lower. And you may find him with tax collectors and sinners, with an adulterous woman, with the poor and needy, even eating with the one who would betray him. Beloved in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper. This meal does not belong to Sand Hills Presbyterian Church. It does not belong to the men who serve you. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's. And it belongs to all those who have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The table is for all those who desire deep roots. If this is true of you, welcome in the name of Jesus. Almighty Father, we do not presume to come to this your table, trusting in our own righteousness but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, that as we eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, we would commit ourselves to bringing order out of chaos. We would open up our lives to those who suffer, that we would meditate on your law day and night, that we might be like a tree transplanted by streams of water. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.